Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. How are you this evening, Margaret? Thank you. I am, I am fine. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We've been planning this for so long. I know. And so many iterations of plans. Like, how do we make plans? Um, I guess just the backup plan. We had to completely change the plan and the backup plan because of the snow, right? Right. Right. Um, but we have great um, a great team of folks, and everybody has a lot of goodwill. Um, let's see. I am apparently um, we need to just change the view to gallery. All right. There we go. Are you sh- are you supposed to be letting people in? The, okay, so we are not letting people into this meeting, but it is live streaming on Calvary's website and on Facebook. So um, I have a, a definite helper here who's um, helping me with some tech issues. So um, that's another uh, um, change was um, being at home and trying to figure out devices and technologies as we go along. So many buttons to press, but I would rather not talk about technology. I would love to talk about your forthcoming book, Graceland at Last. Um, And the title, of course, makes me think of Memphis. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the book and maybe about that piece of it? What's the Graceland at Last? Well, the full title of the book is Graceland at Last and other essays from the New York Times. Okay. That's the title of one of the essays in the book. And it is, in fact, about going to Memphis. Um, We had um, an Australian uh, exchange student staying with us. Mm -hmm. And my husband and I had been trying to get to Graceland. So we'd been to Memphis, but we had never made it to Graceland because our kids were just completely uninterested in going. And so... um, the, 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 the exchange student was very, very interested in music and especially in Southern music. And so I, I thought to myself, if I'm going to make it, it's going to be because this kid is here and he was thrilled. So we did, we went uh, Martin Luther King weekend four years ago, I think. And um, we saw Graceland first thing. And then we also saw, you know, Stax Records, and we saw the National Civil Rights Museum, and um, we just, uh, they saw a, a Grizzlies game. We went down Bill Street. We did the whole Memphis thing, and, um, and you know, once, once, uh, we just don't have, we just, our whole family was East and South, so we just never were, the, the track to Memphis was not a well-traveled road, like the track to Birmingham or the track to lower, Southwest Georgia or the track to Charleston, where we all have in Knoxville, where we have family. Right. Well, we're glad you finally made it to, uh, to Graceland to take in the, uh, all of the shag carpeting and all of the- The mirrors. 
All the mirrors. I couldn't believe how many mirrors there were. Yes. It's, um, I haven't been there in about 10 years, but it is, it's true. I loved it. I I mean, I, I have to admit my parents were big band. My parents were much older than my friend's parents. And, um, they were from the, you know, the swing era. That's the music they played in the car on the oldie station or in the house. So I didn't grow up listening to Elvis. Um, but uh, that Paul Simon album, mm-hmm. Graceland, was the was the real impetus for one to go when I was, I guess, still in college. Nice. Well, we're glad you made it to Memphis in person at least once, and tonight. Oh, I've been to Memphis many times, just never to Graceland. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, because <laughs> you know all of our bookstores here. I love Memphis. I think Memphis. I like, I kind of like Memphis better than Nashville in some ways. It's, it's, um, I don't know. It, 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 it's still a tourist destination, but the tourists are really different that you have there. And, um, and, you know, it just seems like a, a, a more of a human scale city than Nashville, which has gotten so out of control. Yeah. It's definitely human scale. It sometimes feels like a, a great big, small town. Exactly. Yes. Well, I want to welcome you to to Memphis virtually tonight um, and hopefully in person sometime before too long. Um, If you're just tuning in, this is Lent After Dark, part of the Calvary Episcopal Church Lenten preaching series. And our guest tonight is Margaret Rinkle. And if you have attended any of these evening events in the past uh, or last year, particularly, we we strive to structure them um, as a kind of an audio podcast. So this tonight we have some video element to it because we're remote. Um, but I'm going to be saying some things. If you're tuning in now, I'm saying some things for the podcast um, that are part of this part of um, the audio recording. So um, we're glad that everybody can be here tonight, whether you are in Memphis or Nashville or further afield. Um, we're going to be talking tonight about uh, love and loss, uh, about family, about the natural world, and anything else that comes up along the way. And there will be time for your questions. So um, if you have questions for Margaret, uh, we'll take those in about 20, 25 minutes. And you can go ahead and type those into the Facebook chat if you are on Facebook, and um, those will be relayed to us. So. We hope to get to a couple of those a little later on. Welcome to Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. I'm Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator at Calvary Episcopal Church. Our guest tonight is Margaret Rinkle. Margaret Rinkle is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and author of the best-selling Late Migrations, published in 2019 and the forthcoming Graceland at Last. Margaret writes about the intersections of the natural world, faith, politics, and relationships. The Philadelphia Inquirer describes her as the most sensible of spiritual writers. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Heidi. So... For those of you who may not have read Late Migrations or your New York Times work, 
And just as a general introduction, would you describe the spiritual background of your childhood? Well, I'm a cradle Catholic. So my father and mother married in 1960. And in those days, um, the non-Catholic spouse had to promise to raise the children Catholic. My father was a cradle Catholic and um, his mother was Irish. So, um, so my mother, who I don't think anybody in my, my mother had certainly never met a Catholic before she met my dad and my, my grandparents are probably nobody in their entire farming community had ever met a Catholic before my dad. So we went to church um, in a little bitty Catholic church um, with a circuit writer priest because no, no parish had enough uh, parishioners to have a full-time priest. But we, but I also spent uh, so much time with my grandparents. My grandparents were Methodist. I went to church with them when we were there on Sunday and they went to church with us when they were with us on Sunday. My great grandmother was Southern Baptist. So we, um, well, I guess they weren't Southern. They didn't call themselves Southern Baptist that far back, but she went to church with the Methodists when the Catholic, when the Baptist church shut down because there weren't enough Baptists. So we, we were pretty ecumenical, I would say. Yes, very much. And this was in Alabama, right? Very, yeah, very rural, lower Alabama, Southeast Alabama. Okay. And it sounds like church was um, a pretty important part of your childhood. Was it? I think it is for most rural people. It's, um, it's the, the organizing principle of social, you know, the organizing force of all social life in, in, um, in the country. There's not a, you know, a community center, there's a, there's a church community house and there's, you know, there's not a, there's not a city graveyard. There's a churchyard. Um, it, that's just, um, that's just the way rural people live. But, um, but even when we moved to, after we moved to Birmingham, uh, I went, my parents sent me to Catholic school Mm -hmm. and, um, and that and and church was the center of the family social life there too in a much bigger city. Mm-hmm. Um, so, your book "Late Migrations" uh, was published in 2019, although um, it was written um, previous to that. Um, but it came out in 2019. In 2020, uh, we experienced a worldwide pandemic which has continued now into 2021. So your current readers are coming to this book um, from a space of change and sometimes loss, which may affect how your stories land now. Can I ask what sort of a space were you in when you wrote it? And how do you think that has changed now with the changing world context? I think it was a a pretty uh, similar place. My... um... My my father died nine years before my mother, and he had been sick for two and a half years. And there's a, a, a good bit about my dad in late migrations. But my mother, although she needed help because she was um, confused some of the time, she she couldn't pay her own bills or, you know, she we had to unplug her stove. But she needed that kind of help, practical help. But she wasn't ill. And she died very, very suddenly. And I was, she was 80. My grandmother lived to be 97. My great-grandmother lived to be 96. 
And she grew up in an age without antibiotics, without any kind of vaccines. She, um, and, you know, of course, eating, you know, hog fat with, you know, every vegetable she, that crossed her lips. So I just really thought that my mother probably had, you know, 15 more years. And when she died so suddenly, I was really just lost. Um, you know, when you're, when you're taking care of, uh, you know, she, we moved her into the house across the street from my husband and, and the kids and me during the last years of her life. And so she had, she had supper with us every night and she took lunch home in a Tupperware. Um, she was in and out of her house several times a day. And I was always trying to, you know, make sure that there were not, the doctor's appointments were in the books and the medications were being refilled. And it was kind of like, um, I just, the, 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 kind of the organizing principle my whole day disappeared. So I didn't just lose my mother. I lost a lot of the structure of my life. And I think that that might be similar. Um, it's certainly how I feel about this pandemic, um, that it's upended how I think about every aspect of my life. You know, I have it for a while, we weren't even going to the grocery store. I did get COVID and I still have some residual before. I mean, I got it back in the end of February of 2020 before there were even tests in, in, um, in Tennessee. I got, I got sick on a, on a work trip to New York. So I think, um, you know, it, it kind of caught, it kind of had caught me off guard. So the, how rapidly a change like that could happen. So I think in some ways I've heard from a lot of readers that reading late migrations during the pandemic was seemed appropriate to them because they were, even if they weren't personally affected by COVID in, in terms of loss, they were facing mortality in a way, in a head on way that they hadn't been forced to do before. That's usually, that usually happens with, um, you know, when, when you lose somebody and of course loss was everywhere this last year. And your book is, is a book of loss, but also of great beauty. I don't want to, uh, for people who haven't read it, um, don't get the wrong idea. Um, it is, um, the beauty of relationships and the beauty of, um, observing nature. Um, and I think those sorts of things have become more, um, clear and present during the pandemic as well. Just the preciousness of the small things and, um, slowing down to see some of the smaller details of our lives, um, which I really appreciated, um, your, your I think a lot of people became bird watchers this year. You know, if you're going to be stuck in your house. What better entertainment, really? Um, I mean, especially if your work requires you to spend a lot of time on a screen, yeah. you're not looking anymore for, you know, a Netflix program. <laughs> you want to get away from that screen. And, and I've, I've really found that um, so many people have told me they've started watching birds and they've started 
um, reading print books more than they did before, which I think is probably linked in some way to the to all the screens we have to use now for our work. Right. And weren't a, a lot of the seed companies out of seeds last spring because we were all like, quick, let's plant something. Well, I think they were also struggling a little bit with how to keep their employees safe. Um, that's my favorite ritual of winter is the night I get out all the seed catalogs and figure out what I'm going to order or try that's new. I don't have a lot of room. I can't just keep adding new things, but sometimes I, I, I just, just because it's such a fun ritual to start dreaming of spring when it's snowing. But, um, but I did run into last year, I had to put in a whole new flower bed. We had lost a tree in our front yard, a big, big old maple tree to a storm the summer before. And my daughter-in-law, my future daughter-in-law now, my, now my, my daughter-in-law, but the bride to be, um, wanted to wanted wildflowers for the wedding and I had to explain that you can't just go picking wildflowers you can't you can't just help yourself to all the flowers you want um from state parks and, and stuff and of course we don't have any wildflowers growing on the roadways in Nashville so um so I planted a new wildflower garden and I, it was really fun last year, but I did find that the many of the seed catalogs, they didn't have anybody, they, they weren't, they didn't have people on site to pack the seeds and ship them. Uh, it wasn't so much that they ran out. It's just that they, they were trying to keep their employees safe. Wow. Those were just the ones I, I worked with. I tried to order from. I did a few more bulbs this year and last year and whenever I do them in November or um, so on, I can think of no better metaphor for planting hope than just like, all right, here you go. And then I get in when I can't do bulbs because I have too many chipmunks. Uh, the chipmunks will clean out everything. <laughs> but anyway, the, I like the chipmunks, so it's okay. Yes. Um, so getting back to your book, uh, tell us a little bit about the artwork in your book because um, I have pretty small children, and so I'm used to books with pictures, but not as many adult books with pictures, and these were just delightful. Um, can you tell us about those? Sure. Um, the, um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a winding journey, those pictures. Um, when I started writing the essays in Late Migrations, they're very little. They're little bitty. I'm sure you notice some of them are hardly more than a paragraph, but they, I, it was, it was sort of a, um, it was a, a comfort to me after mom died to start writing down these family stories and, and these memories about her. And, um, and I all, and, and I wasn't even planning to, for the first almost two years, I wasn't even thinking of it as a book. Uh, these essays, they were, um, they were just my way of coping with, with loss. And, but then when my friends in my writer's group kept saying, well, you know, this is a book, you know, you're writing a book. I started thinking maybe, maybe there would be some, maybe it would be helpful to people going through this if they had something like that to read. And so I started 
really just at the very beginning thinking of it as a book, but I, I knew that if it was a book, it would need to have pictures by Billy, my brother, because Billy and I are a year apart and he was always an artist and I was always a writer. And we used to do these little books together for mom and dad as presents for their anniversary or Christmas or birthdays and um, eat. And we got older in high school and college, we would make little books for our friends and we just worked together. I mean, I was the editor of the school paper and he was the art director and I was the editor of the college student magazine and he was the art director. We just worked did that kind of work together. But my idea was to take existing artwork um, of his and not make him make all new art for late migrations. But um, it proved to be um, impractical to do it that way because they weren't all the same size and they were really um, not suitable for being, for, for being, printed on regular paper, they would have, they would have needed that expensive glossy paper. So um, when we were pretty far along in, in editing the editing process for late migrations, um, my editor suggested that maybe Billy could make some original art for the book. And, um, and that's what, and he was happy to do that. Um, so it, it, it wasn't quite the way I had envisioned it, but he, um, he made, I think it was 19, either 19 or 21 original artworks for the book. And I just love them. They're, um, it does kind of give you, uh, to me as a reader, it, it kind of gives you that, it casts you back into that feeling of being a child yourself, of that safety and that, um, that comfort of those kind of books, both because it is pretty unusual to have illustrated books um, for adults, but also because Billy is a collage artist. So all of these artworks are made from original documents that go back to, you know, the 19th century, the early 20th century um, to, because that if you're going to reproduce artwork produced from copyrighted images, you're going to get in trouble. So you have to go back to before, you know, to, to works that for which the copyright has already expired. So that old timey look about them too is very, I think it, it gives um, the feeling of comfort. Yeah. I think it, the, the two play off each other really beautifully and, and um, make the book even more enjoyable. Um, He's really kind of a genius, my brother. Um, he, he, and the, this, the way he found to, the, the things in the essays that he wanted to um, to make art about and the way that it kind of almost creates a little dialogue between the art and the words. So I want to ask you, Mary Oliver wrote in her poem, sometimes um, just these, I'm going to read just a little part of her poem. Okay. Instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished tell about it. So do these lines resonate with you at all? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I love Mary Oliver. I've always loved Mary Oliver. She, she had this period of resurgence around the time of her death and people, I know many people who'd never even heard of her book. I first read her when I was in college. Um, I think that that's 
Uh, I, you know, I don't live in a, in a beautiful place like Provincetown. Um, I, I, you know, she wasn't living in a, in a, in a, in a ranch house on a half acre lot in suburbia. So I, I, I don't have, um, you know, so in some ways it, you, you might get the wrong idea reading Mary Oliver that, that, that's the kind of nature that, um, that we should be paying attention to. And we certainly should. But I, I also think that, that what the lines you just read are the real message of Mary Oliver in, in, in that every, for her, everything is holy. Um, it's funny that you pick those lines because the book af- that I'm already working on now that comes after Graceland, that, that won't be out until September, but I'll have a deadline not too long after that for the next book. And the epigraph for that book is from Mary Oliver. And the line that I, the working epigraph, I'm, I might not get to keep it once it goes through the editorial process is to pay attention. This is our endless and proper work. That's going to be, I hope, the epigraph for the whole book. Yeah, I felt that through late migrations that paying attention um, is is clearly something that you do. And um, I think, I wonder if there's space for us to do more of it as well. Um, do you see um, a lot of people, uh, I guess, where do you see us paying attention right now? Where are we giving attention and where can we give more attention right now? I think that the news has been pretty much all absorbing for many, many people this year, this last year, because it has begun to seem life or death to us. You know, uh, will there be a vaccine? Do masks work? Which kind of masks work? Um, When will there be a vaccine? When can I get the vaccine? So much of, and then of course, all the election stuff, that was another whole um, absorbing call during the last year. But um, I don't, I wish, I wish that people gave themselves permission to participate in whatever form of timelessness they can access, whether that's prayer or meditation or acts of attention to temporal and fleeting things, because uh, the, the natural world is in trouble and we won't be able to save so many of these struggling species if people don't feel their value. So you, you can't want to save something you've never noticed was there in the first place. And that's really one of the, the one, one of the few good things that came out of the, of the quarantines is that so many people were just bored enough to be looking out their windows. And I don't mean just people who, who have a yard to look into. I'm talking about people in high rises and, you know, there was a really hilarious video. Somebody, somebody posted on Instagram of a, I think it was a woodchuck sitting on a sidewalk in Philadelphia eating a slice of pizza. And it was, I mean, the, the, the growing awareness of the creatures we share our ecosystems with 
that's my greatest hope for saving them is that people will start paying attention. We were uh, sitting on our screen porch last night for the first time in, in quite some time because last week we had uh, snow, but last night got really warm and we had dinner on our screen porch. And just as we were um, ready to start eating, an owl swooped by um, and flew a few, a few yards down and it was almost like the prayer before the meal had already taken place that we were all just sort of stunned for a few seconds um, into noticing this this beautiful creature so and part of why you noticed it is because you put yourself in a place where you could right and that's the other thing that happened during the pandemic is that we weren't allowed to go to the mall or the movie theater or restaurants and so a lot of the places where I like to walk in the woods were crowded <laughs> for the first time ever. But so many people were finding, were taking themselves out to parks and um, gardens just yeah. to, you know, and, and waking up to the beauty that's been there all along. And they were just busy, too busy to notice. For sure. Agree. Um, would you read from your book, um, the essay called In the Storm, Safe from the Storm. This or might be my very favorite one. Oh. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> I just love, I just, this, the, it's really short. Um, and I should show, it has a picture. That original artwork by uh -huh. Billy. This little house looks, this little house, I don't know, can you see it? It looks almost exactly like the house that we lived in. Um, in the storm, safe from the storm, Lower Alabama, 1965. At my grandparents' house in the country, we live on the front porch where the ceiling fan blows the bugs away and stirs the steaming air into something passing for a breeze. At home in town, we are very modern and have no porch at all. There's a concrete stoop, to, but only the barest overhang to cover it. Hardly anything to keep away the rain or the blistering sun. When a storm comes, my father sets his chair right in the doorway, straddling the jam. I love the storms. If I'm asleep, he lifts me up and carries me through the dark house to sit with him in the doorway and listen to the wind and the thunder. The rain comes and I feel it with the tips of my toes, but they are the only parts of me that get wet for I have drawn my knees up to my chest under my nightgown and my father has unbuttoned his corduroy jacket and pulled it around me and wrapped his arms around me too. I lean into him. I feel the heat from his body and the cool rain from the world, both at once. I was captured by um, maybe that last line, that both at once. We have such contrasts in that essay, the, the raw power, of the lightning and then the warm comfort of your dad's embrace. And just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that both and sensibility that I think runs through a lot of your book, these, these 
huge contact, contrasts side by side and both true. Um, it was probably, it was probably the, the way I was thinking about everything in the time after mom died is I was the way I was working to reconcile that loss um, was, was really kind of to understand that these are natural, that death is only part of life Mm -hmm. and that all, that all of our lives, that's what we have. We have power and we have powerlessness. (laughs) We have comfort and we have fear. This is just part of being alive, I think. And I think, I don't know if everybody feels this way, but I think for too long, I kept thinking of, I think I, I, I was, I kept thinking of unhappiness or, or worry or fear or grief as aberrations, like variations from the norm. The norm was what was happy and sunny and light and safe. And that's really not how it works. It's not that one is a norm and the other is a variation. It's that they're both the norm. That's just where we are. Now in this, in this particular essay, I'm three and a half years old in the story. So I don't know that I would have felt I was trying to capture how I felt, even though I was a grown woman, an old woman writing the essay. Um, as a child, I don't, I did not feel unsafe in that situation. All I felt was uh, the protection of my father, but I loved the lightning. I don't, at that point, I wouldn't have had any clue that it could cause me any harm. He wouldn't have put me in any danger. I just love those two images together, the the strong dad and the the flashing storm. That's I'm amazing. sure my mother would have fussed at him if she'd known, but she always <laughs> went to sleep before we did. <laughs> well, dads are sometimes good for those uh, rule bending mm-hmm. times. Um, speaking of your mother, um, I'm wondering if you could read an essay about her. Um, my mother pulls weeds, Birmingham, 1978. This one, oh, you picked another one with art. This one also has art. It's a marigold. Mm-hmm. My mother pulls weeds, Birmingham, 1978. The kitchen can be full of unwashed dishes, both counters covered in granules of spilled sugar and puddles of congealed milk. The tops of the curtains can be dusted with droppings from the cockatiel who screeches his sorrow so plaintively that she cannot bear to cage him for long. The chairs in the living room can be piled high with laundry and magazines dated years earlier and junk mail still leaved together with the unpaid bills and my sister's forgotten homework, schoolwork, the manifold worksheets of a child still in elementary school. My mother's need for order has nothing to do with the chaos of a life with too little space and too little money and almost no chance to make something beautiful of it all. The chance to create loveliness is always waiting just past the door of our matchbook's rental. 
She never prepares for gardening. No special gloves, no rubber garden clogs, no stiff canvas apron with pockets for tools. No tools most of the time. She steps out of the house or the car, setting her bags down before she even makes it to the door and puts her hands in the soil, tugging out the green things that don't belong among the green things that do. Now another bare square of ground appears and there is room for marigold seeds, the ones she saved when last year's ruffled yellow blooms turned brown and dried to fragile likenesses of themselves. The light bill might be under the covers at the foot of her bed, the unsigned report card somewhere in the mess of papers on the mantel, but she can always put her hands on last year's seeds. And later, in the summer, the very ground she walks on will be covered in gold. I, I really love how you describe her. Um, and it's in a, a complex way. There's the unpaid bills and there's the dust and there's the, the lack of time, but there's also just that love for beauty. Um, and you're so gentle in your description of her, which I think would be hard for it. You were a teenager when this was happening, but um, you give her such grace in this piece. Um, did your mother influence your posture toward the natural world? Um, was she a model for you in that regard? Or um, I didn't think so at the time. I mean, in... in um... And the way these family things tend to play out, um, my brother was mama's child and my sister and I were our dads. And that not, not because of the gender thing, but just because temperamentally my brother, my mother had an artistic spirit and, and um, was very um, lively and effervescent and she loved to dance and but she and was in no way interested in arguing and daddy and Lori and I love to argue and um and and uh, about politics especially but just oh I don't know I remember all kinds of like saying to the the, the parish priest who'd come to dinner telling him when I was 12 years old that I didn't believe in hell. And, you know, it was just that, that kind of provocative sort of conversation was something that was very characteristic of my father's posture to the world. Um, but mama was not interested in that at all. She was a clothing design and construction major and mm -hmm. she loved to garden and she loved, she was, which was in the home economics school at Auburn when she was there it might still be, but she, um, she loved to garden and she loved to sew. She did not love to keep house <laughs> and she kept a very untidy house, but, um, but she always had the prettiest flower beds and so much of the, so many of the flowers she planted and there was no going to the nursery and buying flats of, that was way too expensive, but she saved the seeds from last year's flower so she could grow flowers again and 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 all over Clopton the little farming community where my grandparents lived all the 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 little uh flower beds and fronts of houses had all the same flowers in it because everybody was passing flowers along sharing the 
the if somebody from a ordered a a particular daylily from a catalog, then pretty soon it would be time to divide the daylilies and some, you know, the neighbors would get some. And so my mother always had flowers from Clopton too. Um, yeah, the, the our flower beds were always a showplace. I love how the they brought your your neighborhood together as well, that people would share the, their own riches. But I didn't think of, I wasn't interested in gardening when I was, um, when, when I, when, when I was a child, Billy helped mama in the garden. I would be impressed into weeding, but I didn't like doing it. I didn't enjoy it until, you know, I had my own house and mama did most of the planning when my, when our kids were little, but when I started planting for pollinators and um, that I, I, a lot of what mom taught me came back. It had just take, it had just, you know, been dormant for 40 years. Can you explain what you mean by planting for pollinators? Sure. The, the pollinators are the bees and the butterflies and, and sometimes birds, even, uh, hummingbirds are considered pollinators. They're the the living things that transfer pollen from one from the male flower to the female flower, so that the um, and, and whether whether it's flowers on a, in a flower bed or whether it's flowers on a flowering tree or a shrub, many um, many plants are wind pollinated. They don't the wind blows and the pollen goes where it needs to go. That's what causes seasonal allergies. Are are uh, plants that are wind pollinated. But, but most of the, most plants aren't, um, most plants, well, I, I'm afraid to say that too definitively because I don't actually know that for a fact. Most plants that we eat require the intervention of, uh, of an insect almost always. Sometimes a bat, sometimes a bird, but mostly an insect. And the insects are in steep and very dangerous decline right now mainly because of, well, for many reasons, but partly because of climate change, um, partly because of uh, ecosystem fragmentation, partly because of really um, of, of poison. Once we started having, um, once Monsanto invented Roundup resistant seeds, what about, but, those are the GMO plants that people are, that are considered controversial. Um, the, um, oftentimes they're controversial because it's not clear what they're, or their people believe that they aren't, that we don't know what the long-term health ramifications of those seeds are. Um, but from a, an environmental standpoint, they're dangerous because what happens is it allows the, the, the farmer to spray the entire field with Roundup and it kills everything except the genetically modified seed. So the things that used to provide food for pollinators, um, the little scruffy margins between fields or alongside roads on highways, those don't exist anymore. That habitat is gone because of the pesticides not just Roundup anymore, but Roundup and its descendants. So um, 
as my own neighborhood, as the people in my neighborhood have become more prosperous, there's been, you know, people relying, they don't cut their own grass anymore. They hire lawn services and lawn services don't pull weeds. They spray Roundup. And I was worried about that. So I have flower beds around my house that are planted specifically with the kinds of flowers that bees and butterflies and hummingbirds that, that they like, that, that feed them. Mm-hmm. Both, both that feed them in terms of nectar and also that feed their caterpillars. Cause many, um, many uh, butterflies have really specific nursery needs. The monarch butterfly, for example, will lay its eggs only on milkweed. There are many, many varieties of milkweed. I think probably somewhere over a hundred varieties of milkweed, but they're not all, they're not all um, appropriate for every uh, light and, and soil circumstance. But um, the monarch butterfly can't reproduce if there's not any milkweed to lay the eggs on because the baby caterpillars won't eat anything but milkweed. So even when we think about pollinators um, and the potential losses that we are um, facing with insects and with plant life, I wanna um, go back to one of your quotes here in your book where you say, um, where you're talking about snakes eating tiny bunnies, the, the loss of these tiny bunnies and you say, Oblivion would be easier, and it would be certainly easier if we didn't know about Roundup or about the insects disappearing. Um, and so much of your book is um, carries that beauty and that difficulty. Uh, it's hard to read because it's it's about loss of family members, of animal and plant species, of times in our lives, of children that have now grown up and move away. Um, so why do you keep delving into these spaces of love and loss when clearly oblivion would be easier and maybe maybe happier? I guess that's a really good question. <laughs> I, I, in the context of writing late migrations, it was because I felt that the world was permeated with loss for me. And it, there was, a in, a in a way, a strange kind of comfort in knowing that these were all just part of natural processes. This was just how our world works. And, you know, we can wish it weren't so, but that's that every single thing on this earth, it, every, every um, animate being, is trying to do two things, eat and not be eaten. And that's kind of just an undeniable thing. But when you, when you focus in on that, when you try to come to accept that, you, you're able to see the beauty and the wisdom of that system in a way that you wouldn't if you were insisting on a Disney-fied view of how nature works with birds, you know, singing and landing on princesses, you know, shoulders. That's, that's not nearly as lovely as what we really have. 
it's just extraordinarily beautiful. This world is extraordinarily beautiful. Even if it's sometimes very sad. Um, well, I want to, um, again, invite if anyone has a, a, we have time for just one or two questions. If anybody wants to add their voice to this conversation, again, this is um, a live conversation. So if you're watching right now, um, you're welcome to type in the chat um, if you have a question that you'd like to add. Um, I have uh, just one more here, um, kind of thinking about our place in this beautiful and wise uh, world. Uh, we are creatures, um, but we're also creatures who use machines, technology, mass communication. Um, what is our role in this natural world? Um, because we seem that we are both deadly to it and also capable of protecting it. How do you see our space? Um, as humans. It would be really helpful if people understood that we ourselves are part of the natural world, that we aren't spectators. I think if we, if, if, ever, if more people understood, I mean, you need, I mean, we have to admit that there are very strong forces that do not want us to understand the cost of our consumption. They don't want us to understand the real cost of our waste. Um, either in terms of the natural world or in terms of the human beings who produce it. Um, we don't want to know how dreadful the circumstances are for either the factory farmed animal or the human being in the meat packing plant. We don't want to know those things because they are inconvenient for us to know them. But if we, when we do know, this is one thing I feel really confident about our species is when we see a problem, we do want to fix it. And our biggest problem with, for example, climate change right now is that too many people don't see it. And there are too many forces trying to deny it, to trying to tell people what you see is not really what you see because there's money to be had in our ignorance and our silence and our failure to act. So <clears throat> I think that, uh, but, but I'm encouraged by how many people, even in really rural communities, I mean, people in rural communities, they live closer to the land than people in cities. We, um, and they don't wanna live in a world where they can't drink the water from their tap. They don't want to live in a world where the air isn't safe for their children to breathe because asthma rates have gone up. So I think people are beginning, even though there are such strong forces working against knowledge, I think people are beginning to see. And that's the first step. Like what Mary Oliver says. Exactly. Punished. Exactly. All right. Um, I'm going to wrap up here with um, just a little reflection on um, Lent, the season where we are, and on um, your some of the things that you've brought to us this evening. 
Um, the Christian season of Lent is an annual period of self-examination and preparation. It kicks off with Ash Wednesday, when the priests smear ashes on foreheads and remind us, from dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Lent culminates with the observation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Easter is a celebration with a very long and somber prelude. But there is a kind of beauty in that space of preparation. We remember that life and death must always exist together. As we, as we spend 40 days preparing for the death and resurrection of Jesus, other losses, friends, lovers, pets, childhood homes, open land now dotted with housing developments, bygone days that seemed somehow simpler, they may come to mind. Oblivion would certainly be easier, but how many of us would choose oblivion over love? In her book, Late Migrations, Margaret Rankel writes, but the shadow side of love is always loss and grief is only love's own twin. Our collective losses are great this year. May those losses be markers of how we have loved, how loved we are, and how we continue to love. Thank you, Margaret, for your presence tonight and for your words. Thank you, Heidi. It's wonderful to talk with you. Good night. Night. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.